Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin in my office at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. Stephanie, we're finally reassembling, just the two of us, to catch up. Yes. Uh, it's been a while since we did a catch-up uh, podcast on things that have been happening in the news. What are we talking about today? Everything. <laughs> yes. Literally everything. No, there's so many things to talk about. But the first thing I want to mention is, you got an award, Craig. You got a big award, and you're picking it up next week. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. we're, so we're going to take this. We pre-taped uh, an episode uh, for next week, which will be great. But the fact is, you won a prestigious award from the American Society of International Law for destroying the Caroline. Oh, well, thank you very much. You should be very proud. It's a very prestigious award, and I just want the audience to know that, you know, they don't hand these out like Cracker Jack uh, prizes. <laughs> this, is a, this is a pretty big award because you, your book made a substantial contribution to the understanding of the so-called Caroline criteria, which is the criteria by which we still judge preemptive self-defense. Yeah, and uh, it's got a good cover. Yeah. So it does have a good cover. Yeah, yeah. It's a little dark, but it's good. Yeah, it's All right. Like burning steamships going over, over Niagara Falls. There's not much, you know, you can go wrong with terms that of That was like the that action one. film of like the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, available um, from Irwin Law. Yeah. So congratulations to you. Uh, Did you say there was a, a story in the New York Post about uh, how certain uh, fashion figures now are are accessorizing with books. Well, there you go. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I tweeted out, you know, oh, pick mine. We can get, we can, maybe we can get the weekend. He could like walk around <laughs> destroying the Caroline. But there you go. Uh, but congratulations to you. I oh, just thank, want all our listeners to know. Okay, so, so, we, the first so what first. are we talking about? Right. So we're going to look at C-59. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. That's the uh, short in version. In fact, it's probably doing more than simply pining for the fjords. It's uh, it actually seems to be resuscitating. We're sort of in an emotion roller coaster for the people who follow our Twitter accounts. It's like, okay, everything seems okay, and then we scream on Twitter for a while, and then everything seems to be okay. Yeah, so I've this, used the red siren light twice. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, so, the bat, the bat, uh, <laughs> the bat signal. Uh, so the long and short of it is that after uh, some procedural doubts earlier this week. Uh, and so we're recording this on the 22nd. Uh, earlier this week, there was some suggestion that maybe things had hit a snag in terms of the committee hearings in the Senate. Uh, those concerns were overstated, I'm told. Uh, and in fact, it hasn't hit a snag and there's still a fulsome commitment to send the bill to committee hearings, which uh, I understand are going to start on April 10th. Uh, and with ample time for it to go back to the Senate on third reading and for any amendments to be considered by the Commons uh, in advance of the dissolution of parliament, well, the rising of parliament uh, for the summer session and then its subsequent dissolution for the election, and that uh, this is not the bill on whose hill uh, any uh, of the parties slash groups in the Senate want to die. Um, and so some some positive messaging about a shared understanding of the importance of this bill. That's not to say there won't be careful consideration. That's not to say there won't be proposed amendments. But uh, this is not a bill that will be caught up in procedural chicanery. That's uh, certainly my understanding at this time. And I want to thank uh, the uh, people in the Senate, uh, including, of course, the uh, members of the opposition, the independent senators group, Mark Gold, who's the sponsor, uh, Peter Harder, who's the uh, government representative in the Senate, uh, for making uh, good progress on this bill. It's very, very important. They haven't made good progress, Craig. This is a uh, nightmare. It's right, been a so nightmare. I'm the good I'm cop. Sorry, you're the good cop. I'm the bad cop. We had this discussion <laughs> <laughs> on the way here. No, it's uh, I, it's been very crazy about this bill. This is not the kind of thing that you want to play political games with. It just looks bad. And I'm deeply concerned at the way this this bill has, in fact, been treated. And um, so, yeah, I mean, like, like you've, you've very politely walked back your internet rage. I just, I put it this way, for now. My I'm, internet rage is pretty mild-mannered. It is. I mean, <laughs> When you get you apologize to me for getting animated when your eyebrows just start going up and down more. I'm like, that's that's not rage, Craig. For now, I've put away the torch and the pitchfork. 
And I'm going to promise the Senate, this is my promise, if you pass this bill, I will bake you a large cake and I will serve it in the lobby. And everyone knows I have a good reputation for making cake. So you should take me up on that offer. <laughs> and, and, and otherwise, you cry havoc and let slip the dogs of Twitter. Uh, yes, the, the dogs of Twitter. Um, that will be that will be it. And I will I will I will scream relentlessly. And you don't you don't want that, Senate. No one wants that. Um, uh, right. So all, all that to say, I mean, we've gone through this. You said emotional roller coaster because there was reporting in iPolitics that. The bill was going to be delayed, and then that was walked back, and then there was reporting this week that it was going to be delayed, and then it walked back. So this is the problem. But I also think, you know, there's a messaging issue here from the Senate that they need to communicate these things better because what we started calling it Senate, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, this is running as, as opposed rumors. to human tour. Yeah, Sigint. human sigints. I was like, oh my god, um, yeah, but like rumors and Senate is not the way to to uh, carry through a bill on such weighty matters in a way that inspires confidence. And I hope that some lessons are learned here for at least the independent senators group who, fair enough, are still getting their footing, but my goodness, this has not yeah. been a smooth process. Well, and you know, you and I, we have uh, an intellectual interest, an interest as citizens. I suppose my vested interest is I've, with Leah West, updated my national security textbook in anticipation of Bill C-59 being law, and I don't want to have to rewrite it. But we don't have a, a personal stake uh, in the same way they say no-fly list kids do and they yeah, were of course on our exactly. podcast and and so when we say it's an emotional roller coaster for them uh because their redress system is is ultimately dependent on this bill going through and and then follow-up design of the database uh, and electronic system that we discussed in that podcast for them it has been more than an emotional roller coaster and i think there it's was some sense, some sense of that yeah. in the podcast we did and of course for the services who confront some hard dilemmas that we talk about regularly on the show uh, to the extent that this bill resolves those hard dilemmas, and it does address many of the hard dilemmas for them, that this uncertainty, and we've talked about the prejudice of uncertainty for security services, that uncertainty, uh, debilitating is too strong a word, but, uh, you know, it is for them also very, very difficult. But even though we're at the point where, like, you know, I, I for part of a research project I'm doing, I've been interviewing people at the agencies that are dealing with this, and that's all they're talking about right now. They're terrified about this, the future of this bill because so much rests on it. Right, so much rest on. CSIS cannot ingest data sets. You know, this is a real problem. We look, we're in the rest of this podcast, we're going to talk about a whole lot of whack of threats and all threats for which certain classes of data are going to be very useful. And if you have an intelligence service that cannot ingest that information, this is not okay. So this is what this is. Um, anyways, I'm getting worked up again. Yeah, I know. So all you know right, what? So, let's just so, think about uh, cake. Let's pass um, the bill. Inner peace. Yes, inner peace and cake and carbohydrates. Right. So good. Okay, right. so that's the beginning. We were a little bit like car talks and NPR, except talking about national security bills. Yes. Uh, all right, so what are we going to talk about other than C-59? So something a lot more tragic, unfortunately, which is, of course, um, the incident in New Zealand in Christchurch where 50 people were killed by an individual who, uh, by his own... Um, detestable statements has basically confirmed that he was a far-right individual and wanted to kill Muslims, uh, probably subscribed to far-right ideologies like the replacement theory, that basically there's a, some kind of worldwide conspiracy to get rid of white people, um, you know, certain internet memes uh, all over the place. And, um, this and, is and I recall, as, I, as the reporting is correct, the, named the perpetrator of the massacre, the mosque massacre in Quebec City, named him and wrote, stenciled his name onto the cartridge of the weapon he used. Right, with other individuals as well, right? So, um, I mean, so this is tragic. And, but it's also raised questions about the far right here in Canada. I've been doing media about that that all week. And it really was just such a heartbreaking thing to happen. Um, and it really, it always, 
you know, we talk about these things and, and we love this podcast so much, but, you know, it, these are the kinds of incidents that uh, really put everything into perspective. So there was a number of questions that came out of this. One is, is this terrorism? Mm. And New Zealand appears to be, you know, like, like at least the, the prime minister who quite frankly has set the standard, I think right now for being a prime minister and showing empathy and uh, showing responsible leadership. Um, prime Minister Arden, she's, she's just done a, a, a very good job. And um, she has basically... Um, called the incident terrorism, which was the appropriate thing to do. She's put forward some gun reform, uh, which is, I think, also probably appropriate. So he, he, it looks like he's been charged right now with murder, not necessarily terrorism. No, we've t- discussed this multiple times on the podcast. Mm. Politically, he's, it's being called terrorism. Right now, it seems to be called uh, uh, murder. Now, in, in our previous podcast, we've talked about the kind of left of bang, right of bang Mm. issues with regards to that, that it's easier after something has taken place uh, to just simply charge someone with the act of killing. Mm. Uh, The terrorism doesn't necessarily add anything, but does add a lot of work. But then there's the kind of problems with the fact that there seems to be, yeah, the optics of it that look quite bad. Yeah. So yeah, just to rehearse that, because I got a lot of questions, not a lot of questions, but some questions on Twitter. So is, is this, would this be terrorism in Canada? And the answer, in my view, unequivocally, is that it would meet the definition of terrorist activity, which is a defined term in the criminal code. Now, you know, I want to underscore this because every time an instance like this happens, there's sort of a metaphysical question. Is it terrorism? And there's sort of the, it's, it's almost like we have to consider this from a philosophical perspective. But, but I see that as a jurist as simply a legal question because on the books since 2001, we've had a comprehensive definition in this country of what terrorist activity amounts to. And, and frankly, our model uh, w- was based on the UK model of, of 2000. And that same model is the inspiration for the New Zealand definition. There's not much difference between our definitions. Three definitions, of, our, right? Our three definitions. And uh, so uh, the requirements basically are predicate acts, usually of violence. And so like there's an element of violence, in this case, bodily harm, you know, killing someone, tick off that box. Done for a political, religious, or an ideological purpose or motive, a 75-page manifesto, mm, pretty open shot, right? I mean, uh, you describe some of the con- content. It's not a... It, it, I want to come back to that, but yeah. So so in my view, it's unequivocal. Um, it's like a Brevik-like uh, standard. Uh, this, this is the July 22nd uh, murder in, in Norway. Uh, and then a supplemental requirement, a purpose done for the purpose of intimidating a population, a segment of the population, or to induce behavior by a government or even a mere person. Uh, and so those requirements to induce terror, essentially, for a political motive using violence are met uh, in on the facts here. Uh, you know, all this has to be adjudicated beyond a reasonable doubt in a court, but based on the reporting, there's no doubt. Once you meet the standard of a terrorist activity, then the question is, is there uh, an actual terrorism offense that's tied to that concept of terrorist activity that would make sense to charge a person with? And as we've said repeatedly in this podcast, most of our terrorism offenses in Canada are what we call uh, left of bang. They're about preempting the act of violence, about essentially conspiracies. And so once you get to the act of violence, there's lots of other crimes, regular plain vanilla crimes like murder, which make a lot more sense to charge because they're a lot easier to prove because you don't have to prove all those things that are part of terrorist activity that I just described. That doesn't change the fact, though, that the underlying act also ticks off the boxes for terrorist activity. And in fact, on sentencing, it's entirely appropriate to take into account the fact that that thing that's been charged, whether you call it a terrorism offense or not, is in fact terrorist activity as an aggravating consideration. And we had this conversation about the Quebec City case, the Bisonette case, where the court, in my view, gave very short shrift yeah. to the what I consider 
uh, a terrorist activity and instead focused on the hate element, which was present, but the two can both be co-present. And so, again, one of these comments that I see all the time is that you have to dis distinguish hate from terrorist activity. No, hate, uh, that the motivating element, the ideological element that constitutes hate can also be the ideological element that ticks off that box for terrorist activity. These are not hermetically sealed concepts, but in practice what's happened is a pattern which I find quite disturbing, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very reluctant to go here, but I'm having a much harder time doing this now because of the way the track record, terrorist activity is what we do when we talk about uh, Muslims and other minority groups who engage in political violence, and when white men engage in political violence, we tend to call it hate. Um, and that's not necessarily what the law requires us to do. And so I have a lot of concern that there's a cult, there's an element of cultural baggage in the way we're approaching this sort of stuff. And I know there's a whole bunch of legal reasons no, 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 that it's might not, it's influence not that. that discussion. Yeah, I know. It's not that. I mean, we've had the discussion. Um, um, and I agree with everything you say, particularly, you know, the, the, there's the political act of calling something terrorism. There's the ability to incorporate it in the sentencing, um, which I think is important as well. And I, I agree it failed in the Bizonet case. I guess, like, I look at the manifesto. I, I'm really reluctant to put a huge amount of stock in it simply because this was a person who was steeped in irony culture. You know, they call it irony poisoning on the, on the internet, that this is someone who probably almost certainly subscribe to far-right reviews yeah. but like the problem is like how does a court treat a document that has things in it like hashtag subscribe to pudu pie or uh, yeah i was radicalized by video games not because he yeah. wasn't there's a He's, lot more in that manifesto yeah I like it, they, there's a lot of layers yeah. to it like like disgusting layers mm -hmm. don't get me wrong but like that's the problem it's like so you present it to a court and it's like it's not a and document it was recorded you can take seriously. for political purposes, right? Yes. There's a whole agenda, right? Yeah. But this goes back to our conversation, which we had at length about how coherent the ideology has to meet this requirement, right? Right. So, uh, my view is there's no legal requirement. It says in whole or the, the act says in Canada in whole or apart, in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological uh, motive, in whole or in part, not entirety. And yet, when we have these conversations about right-wing extremism. We set, seem to set this bar about coherence of the ideology quite far or quite high, and yet when we have the conversation for ISIS or Al-Qaeda inspired, it's about having the ISIS flag and yelling El Akbar. Yeah, no, I think the standards are totally different. And I mean, we've, um, I don't know if we can, we can kind of segue into some of the other, I think, issues surrounding this. What's interesting is kind of the, the way this far-right material is allowed to flourish online, right? We, we've had a lot of conversations following that particular incident. Mm. What's interesting is that in New Zealand, they're now saying you can go to prison for up to 10 years for sharing uh, the video and, the, and I believe the manifesto as well, uh, which is really a strong mm. punishment. Yeah. Um, but also here in Canada, like, I mean, it, it's kind of astonishing. We've seen um, individuals, and I'm, I'm not going to name them, but it, it's all over Twitter, who have made direct threats, like basically saying, um, look, if you decide, or hypothetically, I think was the word, it, hypothetically, if you're going to do a lone wolf attack, these are the people you should attack, yeah. and this is how you should do it. And this individual, their Facebook account is still up, yeah. right? And the police are looking into it. But I'm like, you know, I noted on Twitter, I said, if this was a Muslim, the RCMP would have arrested this person. If this person had basically wasn't talking about defending white people, but talking about defending the Islamic State, we this would have been another terror case. And it really is is kind of mind-boggling because of our institutional responses, which I find deeply frustrating. But secondly, also the fact that the social media companies 
haven't done anything about that. This individual is allowed to yeah. have an account to spread their to basically spread their filth. We've had this conversation a couple of times, including with the CSIS director about the, the the services trying to grapple with the rise of right wing extremism, oh, yes, which is a moving target. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the worries I have, if you read Dan Livermore's book, which is uh, it's quite fascinating, detained, uh, and he talks about the degree of knowledge in the 1990s. Uh, amongst the security services about Islamist extremism and how it wasn't actually considered a priority. Uh, and there was a very steep learning curve very quickly thereafter, after 9-11. Uh, I worry that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, and that much like we always prepare to fight the last war, well, um, are we not perhaps anticipating where the, the needle's going? Uh, and again, I, I understand the history. Yeah, but I would say that I think what, what we've seen here in Ottawa, we've definitely, as you say, we have seen... The, the question, I, I, we have seen the security services interested in this. I think their concern is they acknowledge they have a set of tools, yep. but they're not sure how to use them in this space. Yep. Right. So to me, I don't really care if CSIS is investigating, the RCMP is investigating, the OPP is investigating, or the local police are investigating. Someone needs to be investigating this. The question is, who has the best tools to actually address this? And is this changing as the movement itself is becoming more transnational yeah, in, in, in nature? So the, but my concern is that is not necessarily the who has the best tools, but why isn't this being prosecuted? Mm. Well, yes, uh, and why isn't it being prosecuted in terrorism in cases where the, that series of thresholds, which I just described, are, are is potentially available uh, in circumstances where you don't have those, you know, murder cases? And so there are instances, it seems to me, where the fact that it's a terrorist activity would aggravate the offense and create the prospect of a longer uh, imprisonment. And that's built in, that's baked in. So if you you know do bank robbery or if you do an assault, which doesn't already have a life minimum uh, in terms of the sentence, if it's done in association with a terrorist activity that ticks off those boxes, it becomes a life offense. We have, we not, I don't think we've ever seen that. We, we have never seen that for a right-wing extremism case, even though there are right-wing extremism cases and there have been for a long time of assault, et cetera. Now, the, the, the argument would be from your you know, plain vanilla prosecutorial purpose, you, you get them for assault because it's a beer-fueled berserker, uh, sort of neo-Nazi assault. That's been the pattern in the past. Nah, we're not talking about that necessarily anymore. We're talking about a sort of a transnational or transnationalization of right-wing extremism Sharing with, ideas. with much more serious yeah. potential uh, downstream consequences. Uh, and also it increased the other, it's not just the sharing of ideas, it's also uh, what I've been describing this week is an increase in lethality, yeah. right? They're like I'll, I'll often, oftentimes in the past, these attacks have like a targeted cops in particular, but they've also targeted individual, uh, like, like one or two individuals at a time. And of course, like I'm not trying to downplay this, like I'm not trying to, like if these people are in your community, you're probably rightfully terrified. But what we're seeing now is the these kind of like the Quebec mosque shooting, uh, the New Zealand shooting, which killed 50 people. Like, so it's not just the fact that these attacks are happening, but the fact that um, they're becoming more and more lethal. Um, the, the attacks in the United States last fall, the, 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 the attacks themselves are becoming far more dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I think so for those two reasons, the National Security Services may have some tools that would be useful. They're trying to figure out how they fit in this 
um, ability to kind of counter these threats, but it's 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 a challenge. Yep. It's, you don't no, want to burst in like the Kool Aid Man. So I I I don't want my statements to sound like criticism uh, in terms of the dilemmas they face. I I just feel a certain urgency now, and I'm hoping that urgency carries over in terms of the work that we're seeing um, in the services. Can I make a point about the the speech issues you raised a few yeah, minutes ago? Yeah, that'd be great. So we talked about this in a prior podcast about speech crimes. Like I think we called it speaking like a pirate because it was it was talk it, like a pirate day. It's yeah. International Piracy Day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Uh, and we walked through a series of thresholds. So one threshold is uttering threats, threats of bodily harm or property damage. And we have seen, so for example, every once in a while you see the, the, the RCMP have charged an individual with uttering threats in relation to um, harming the prime minister, right? So those those things can be charged. There's also counseling an offense. And so a counseling offense, which we've talked about in the past, if you transmit or make statements that actively induce or advocate, not merely describe, but induce or advocate the commission of offense, uh, e- either intending that that offense be committed or knowing uh, that in uh, counseling that offense, there's an unjustifiable risk that it will occur, that's counseling. So, you know, counseling assault, counseling murder, whatever. Uh, those are available. Whether they would reach the more sort of oblique statements, that's the question that was really raised by this advocacy and promotion of terrorism offenses in general concept that is so fraught, comes from C51. And now we're seeing, a, I think, a renewed discussion, potentially a renewed discussion. In C-59, they roll it back to a variant on a counseling offense. There's a halfway house between counseling and the C-51 crime. And, and the concern about the C-51 crime, just to rehearse you know, one of the golden oldies we talked about in this podcast before, is it's so vague. And it doesn't have the architecture that, that saved the equivalent for hate crimes from constitutionally being struck down. It doesn't have that architecture. They could have. They could have added a couple words and the constitutional complaint would fall away. And so the issue then is... It, it was the willfully versus it, knowingly. Yeah, and then some of the defenses that are yeah. part of uh, willful promotion of hate. That could ease... You could you could take the template from willful promotion of hate and you could, you could superimpose it on this advocacy and promotion of terrorism offenses. And I think it would be constitutional in a way that the, the much you know, sort of rudimentary uh, thing that C-51 created is not constitutional. And you would have a speech offense that goes a bit further than counseling and uttering threats and possibly could capture uh, a larger universe of sort of these oblique statements that really are pernicious and amount to essentially terrorism propaganda. So something between what's in C-51 uh, and the changes being made in C-59. Uh, yeah, basically. And by by between, I mean basically covering the same conduct except with more certainty, so it, I understand what it means. With regards to the language, and, yeah. And then also, you know, some of that constitutional uh, fabric, which which uh, allows it, to, because it creates certainty and you have to have a certain measure of intent, that keeps it from uh, being almost, almost instantaneously charged now, you know, a constitutional train wreck. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if this, what the Senate does with that counseling offense in C-59 and whether they try to go for the halfway house that I've been describing. I mean, it's hard to describe on a podcast, but, you know, there is language that one can use. Yeah, well, I mean, listeners can go back and, and listen to our speech crime uh, episode on, on C-59, the talk like a pirate and a terrorist. I think that's what yeah, it was yeah, called. Somewhere. As well, we, we've, done, we've done other episodes on this as well. All right, Stephanie, so what's next? So now we uh, come to the other fun magical roller coaster that is Huawei. Hmm. Um, so there's really two issues here. Uh, firstly, the developments in the Huawei case uh, with regards to Ms. Meng, who is uh, still detained, although I put that in uh, quotation marks because I think she's living in a house that's nicer than mine hmm. uh, and shopping in Vancouver, which doesn't sound like the worst way to do it. So there's two developments well, was a couple of developments and and how it was the the charges that were eventually uh, brought forward by the FBI. And then in d- addition, there's 
there was a, an announcement done by the UK National Cybersecurity Center with regards to Huawei in particular. So, but I thought we would start with the you, the yeah. extradition, and that I'm putting that firmly in your camp because uh, that is a, okay. a hot mess. <laughs> so it's been a while since we talked about this, right? And so yeah. we had a back in December we had a walkthrough with Robert Curry on the way extradition law works. Uh, that was when the matter first arose. I think we've mentioned it from time to time, but just to update our listeners. So the Americans decided to perfect their formal request for extradition. That is, they formally filed a request for extradition. Once that happened, and, and we're on a rail in terms of process. It's, the, it's a determined it's process, It's a determined right? process. Yeah. That triggers then a committal hearing in front. Uh, in this case, it's the BC Supreme Court, which is the lower court in BC. Uh, and uh, the committal hearings task so the court has a basically a single task to decide whether what the Americans are alleging as and it's a crime in the United States whether that same crime could also be submitted for trial in Canada and uh, on wrong. the basis of, of what the Americans are saying happened yeah it was an investigation linked to HSBC yeah so the issue is here what they're claiming is that uh, Miss Meng uh, engaged in fraud uh, in relation to banks uh, that were tied to essentially sanctions busting in the in the Iran context. Uh, and so could so, that fraud, would that fraud be cognizable as a crime in Canada and could it be submitted for uh, prosecution in Canada? And that's the issue for the committal hearing. Right, because like the sanctions issue, like violating sanctions is they're not, probably not going to work. Fraud, however, fraud, is something we you know, totally like, hang yeah, out exactly. on. Exactly, so they're not yeah. actually claiming for Miss Mang, they are for Huawei, but for Miss Mang, they're not arguing a violation of American sanctions law per se, because doing the matching of sanctions law, U.S. sanctions law, and Canada sanctions law is way more complex uh, than fraud. Yes. So uh, at this point, so there was a hearing uh, on March 6th. Next one's in May in front of the court, a committal hearing. Uh, I don't have access to the filings in this case. The case, though, that I understand the defense is going to make, amongst other things, they're going to claim what's known as an abusive process. And we've talked about abusive process on this podcast before. So one example of abusive process would be, in a criminal context, entrapment. And basically, abusive process is the inherent jurisdiction a court has to say that what the state is doing, or any party, frankly, is doing, uh, co-ops the justice system and, and casts the justice system in disrepute. And so the abusive process claim in this case would be, Mr. Trump is using this extradition process as a chip as a lever in his ongoing fractious uh, debate with the Chinese over the Chinese economic practices and, and trade practices. And, and certainly he's almost tweeted as much. Well, he has essentially tweeted as much. Oh, he's, he suggested that he's prepared to intervene uh, to extract concessions from the Chinese in this broader uh, trade conflict that the Americans and Chinese are engaged in. Right. So the obvious argument for the Defense Council is the Canadian court is being used as a pawn. And this court proceeding is, uh, it's not a bona fide, it's not a legitimate court proceeding, uh, and therefore is an abusive process, and in consequence, it should be stayed. Now, even if a court finds abusive process, by the way, there's not an automatic requirement that the court stay it. There are instances where courts have stayed, though, extradition proceedings, because they thought that the requesting state was acting in bad faith. So, uh, in fact, one of the Catter brothers, uh, where the Americans sought extradition. Uh, so, the, uh, the issue is... Will the defense counsel be able to persuade this court that Mr. Trump's tweets and statements are enough to give this a political cast and therefore justify not just a finding about abusive process, but also then justify the remedy of a stay? If that happens and the court has the power to end the committal hearing, there is a right of appeal. Uh, and I'm assuming the government would exercise that right of appeal and it would go to the B.C. Court of Appeal. 
if it doesn't happen, and so there's not a stay of proceedings, there's not an abusive process uh, conclusion, other legal arguments, and there are probably a couple other legal arguments that the defense might make, are unsuccessful, and most of these arguments are unsuccessful. Most committal hearings, we're talking like 90, 90, 95% of extradition cases that get through the committal process goes to the minister, the minister of justice, Mr. Lametti. And Mr. Lametti then has to make a decision. Well, at least on, this week. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Well, SNC Lavalin humor. Right, okay. <laughs> okay. Mr. Lametti then has to make a decision on the question of surrender. Will Ms. Meng actually be surrendered to the United States? And uh, there are a couple of considerations. He cannot surrender if he concludes, in his opinion, that surrender would be unjust or oppressive in the circumstances. Uh, he, there are other considerations he can take into account, including extraterritoriality. Ms. Meng is accused of crimes that took place well outside the territorial space of the United States. The United States will argue that there is dollar-denominated transactions, and so it touched de facto the U.S. But, you know, Canada has very, very sensitive about U.S. assertions of very extreme extraterritoriality because we've been on the receiving end uh, of such you know, sort of long arms of U.S. law, and we're not, we're not happy about that, nor are the Europeans. So maybe as a policy matter, we may not want to reward an American uh, assertion of you know, fairly aggressive extraterritoriality. The counter-argument from a policy perspective is during the time at which Ms. Meng's conduct was at issue, we were part of an international coalition who imposing sanctions under UN Security Council resolution so are we really going to stand in, in the way of enforcement of what were then universal sanctions uh, prior to the, the Obama-era agreement on nuclearization in Iran? Are we really going to stand in the way of the Americans enforcing that because of our finicky views on extraterritoriality? I don't know. But can I ask another question? I mean, mm. I also thought maybe the R I thought I read that the RCMP is being questioned about the, the procedural way they went about yeah, the arrest. Hold the that thought. That's a separate okay. proceeding. So let's just finish the next tradition. It's another proceeding. Yeah. Oh, God. So just, just to finish the thought about what the minister can do, uh, another consideration for the minister is going to be uh, the, you cannot extradite if it's, if it's a political offense. And so I would imagine Ms. Mang's counsel, once again, will kick at that can again, saying that Mr. Trump has made this a political offense. It's sort of a bit unclear as to whether a plain vanilla criminal offense like fraud is made political because the president is making noises about it being used as a chip in a geopolitical uh, game of chicken with the Chinese. So it's not clear what would happen there. Anyway, so the minister then will make a decision about whether to surrender or not, can take into account foreign policy considerations. Absolutely clear from the Supreme Court jurisprudence, it is a policy-oriented uh, decision. Foreign policy in this case would be our relations with the Americans, our relations with the Chinese. I am so glad I am not in the business of trying to make that balance uh, as Minister of Justice. Thereafter, let's say there's a decision to extradite, Ms. Meng can judicially review the minister as well as appealing the committal hearing. Those tend to be fused together, those two proceedings, and that can go through the BC Court of Appeal and with leave ultimately could go to the Supreme Court. This could be a very long proceeding. Right. Now, you mentioned this collateral proceeding. Yes. Uh, so Ms. Meng has also brought a civil suit against the CBSA and the RCMP uh, pertaining to her detention initially at Vancouver International Airport, claiming she was falsely imprisoned uh, and that there were unlawful searches of, amongst other things, her electronic devices or phone. That's utterly unrelated, frankly, to the extradition proceeding. They're on separate tracks. It's a civil suit. Uh, how it might tie in to the extradition proceeding? Well, the more you can suggest that there was something unusual about the seizure here, the arrest, that it was maybe pretextual, it was done at the behest of the Americans, it was used as an opportunity to search her devices in bad faith. The more sort of aspersions you can cast upon that procedure, the more than you could feed that into your abusive process claim 
on the extradition side and say that this is this is all a really bad judge, you know, you really should stay the extradition proceeding. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that, uh, you know, the Canadian government is pretty sensitive uh, on the issue as to what they can do at the border. The view is that they can treat your smartphone the same way as they can treat your suitcase and they can search it to their heart's content, at least legally. Their policy standards are a little bit more demanding, but legally they take the view that you have very limited charter rights at the border, and that's been upheld so far by the courts under jurisprudence that goes back to the 1980s before everyone was carrying their entire lives around in small portable devices. Um, The government has settled cases that have since come up where at issue was whether they really could search smartphones without constitutional protections, without warrants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, They've settled those cases because it's not clear to me that the courts would be quite as forgiving of those searches given uh, that the smartphone's not the same thing as a suitcase. And so my question is, are they, you know, are, is Ms. Meng's counsel aware of the sensitivity? Are they essentially uh, increasing the political downside risk of the government of proceeding uh, with uh, this Meng process, where frankly they have no choice but to proceed with the Meng process? Sure. Uh, but, you know, just basically creating uh, more uh, political uh, pressure points in uh, to make life difficult for the Canadian government. Uh, that's one possibility. I don't know. I, I don't know what motivates it, but it's certainly an area of sensitivity that is searches at the border. And, and from my perspective as a jurist, I'm very excited at the idea that you have a well-resourced litigant who has every incentive to fight the constitutional rights that you and I and everyone else who travels in Canada have uh, at the border uh, and will presumably, if they have the time and means, take it all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, and so we'll settle this uh, disputed area of Canadian jurisprudence. So, How ironic that the rule of law <laughs> could well be further developed in this strange case. By Huawei. Yes. <laughs> By Huawei. Uh, also, you have weird desires and wishes, okay, <laughs> yeah. for, for law. Uh, it's a very, I mean, so I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek. No, here. no, I, mean, I understand. It's a very difficult situation, that, but... and we should acknowledge, uh, that as we're talking about this, that, of course, it's not just a theoretical issue of extradition law and, and Huawei. It's, there are also Canadians who are caught up in this. For over a hundred days now. Yeah, and so uh, we're talking about two individuals who are being detained, Canadians detained, in China and another, a third individual who was convicted of drug crimes and then an extraordinary procedure, as I understand it, was after conviction was brought back to court and their penalty was was uh, was increased to death. Yeah, he was appealing, but then yeah. they said, well, actually, no, you should be yeah, so, sentenced to more. So, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the background to all of this. And I, I think it's important to remember that. And also, to, uh, China has now imposed canola, canola sanctions, yeah. which well, I... I, I I'd said I, I thought that was that's how they always retaliate. Yeah. It's always canola. Well, um, the, I I'd actually had canola farmers email me, <laughs> uh, and for real. And they were like, when this happened in December, and they're like, does the government know what it's doing? Because yeah. this is going to be taken out on us. Yeah. And they were wrong. Well, the, this, look, I mean, the government really has had no choice. The Canadian government's had no choice. So there has been some discussion about this under the treaty. Once the Americans issued a provisional arrest request, it says shall. Canada shall detain that person. And that's what happened in December. We don't have a choice. Uh, and in terms of what follows thereafter, it's it, like I said, it's on a rail. It gets to the minister and the minister then can take into account policy considerations, uh, again, governed by the rule of law, but administrative law in this case, it's not like a criminal trial. And they can take into account all these variables and all these variables can be political in the, in the foreign policy sense, but it's governed by a statute. And it's not like we can just ignore the statute and say, ah, we're going to cut a special deal on the side. And so, uh, you know, the government has not done great on the messaging in this area. There's no doubt. This is not the first issue. Yeah. But, <laughs> and, but you know what? When lives are look, they're really, being detained, this is bad. Like in terms of the way that it's worked mechanically, there's there's no wiggle room here. All right. And there's no wiggle room. 
uh, unless we want to violate our obligations to the United States, our treaty obligations, and ignore the terms of the extradition law. Shall we move on? Yeah. Okay, so other Huawei. And I just wanted to flag this because this has importance for, for Canada as well. So uh, earlier this year, Kieran Martin, who's the head of the UK's uh, National Cyber Security Center, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of the Canada Center for uh, Cybersecurity. And this individual came out and actually spoke a lot about 5G, Huawei, all these questions that are being raised here, right? So Canada is not the only country that's dealing with Huawei and 5G, which is separate entirely. Well, <laughs> except maybe in Mr. Trump's mind. But I mean, this is this is really a, a separate issue. But a lot there's been a lot of concerns about the security and safety of Huawei and, and 5G technologies. And what's interesting about uh, Mr. Martin's speech is that firstly, it notes the problems generally in the sector with uh, telecommunications that we don't build for security um, and that the the market effectively does not incentivize this. And this is this is a huge industry-wide problem, not just in the UK, but everywhere. And secondly, the, the need to pr improve resiliency, right? So if something gets taken out, that other things can take its place or the system can respond and adjust fairly quickly. And why that's important is that we don't improve resiliency by reducing the number of players in the market, right? If you have more uh, systems, more competition, um, but also like if one system gets taken out, then you have system two, three, four, five, that can kind of take its place. Mm -hmm. And so what's important here is that um, this is the context in which the Huawei decision needs to be made in, in every country. And he said, quote, should the supplier market consolidate to, uh, to such an extent that there's only a tiny number of viable options that will not make for good cybersecurity, whether those options are Western, Chinese, or from anywhere else? Any company in an excessively dominant market position will not be incentivized to take cybersecurity seriously. And at the same time, that company could also become the prime target for attack for the globe's most potent cyber attackers. So the problem is a monoculture, a technological yeah. monoculture? Yeah, because if you think about it, like it's <laughs> it's kind of like uh, here in Canada, this is separate, but for example, we have Bell and Rogers that basically run our mobile phones. Yeah. And sometimes Rogers or Bell goes off. Half of us go offline, right? But if there was like... So redundancy and... Yeah, so if there was like seven mm. different companies, that wouldn't be such a problem. So if you think about it in the cybersecurity sense, like if there's only like two or three different companies in which right now I'm told there's only about three companies that can do the 5G... Like a Right. Takes out half the system, right? Right, and so this is the problem. So I mean, like, this like crops, right? Coming back to canola. <laughs> oh God! Right. So if you have a single species crop and uh, it's genetically similar, and a pest is going to take out that species, right? And so and and this is it's interesting because then he goes on to talk about like the fact that they have a, they have a regime like we have a regime here that oversees Huawei. They think it's the best in the world, and actually says it's working because we have found weaknesses in Huawei software, mm. and we've downgraded the assurances that we can provide. But we're demanding that Huawei improve those going forward. And so and he says this, is, this shows that the system's working because we are finding flaws and we are fixing it. Not flaws that would necessarily create like massive vulnerabilities, but cybersecurity flaws generally. And the fact is, and this point's been made to me a couple of times, if China wants to hack us, it doesn't need Huawei to do it. Yeah. Well, the right? irony, of course, is the NSA used Huawei products, uh, piggybacked on it and, and did their own hacking. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that was uh, Sanger's book. Oh right, yeah, I, haven't yeah. had, I haven't I haven't made it through that. Yeah, I've, that's great. I've heard mixed reviews. Maybe oh, maybe like we should it. do like a book club at yeah, the end yeah, of the sure. term. But anyways, okay. So it's a fascinating speech, and again, this is very much along the lines of what 
Scott Jones, um, who's head of the, the Canadian Center mm. for Cybersecurity, what he's been saying. And it's basically making the case for risk management rather than a ban. Yeah. And I think the other interesting aspect here is that there was a lot of kind of breathless reporting in the end of 2018, early 2019, that there was all these plans that the U.S. had uh, basically convinced the Five Eyes partners that they were to, to ban it. Yeah, not um, true, right? No, totally not true, which yeah. is also a Sanger article, I should add. Mm. Um, he said that, that there had been New this meeting. Yeah. yeah, and it kind of repeated some uh, reporting in an Australian paper that basically there was this apparently Five Eyes plan, which... I have been assured never actually happened. So, but basically like a lot of the country. So there's been pushback on this from, uh, from the U S position, which is ban, 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 ban. So the UK is going to, uh, has now said it wants to keep it. Germany has said it wants to keep it. And Germany is really important for the kind of networks within Europe. It's kind of the center. Uh, New, even New Zealand, which had kind of been leaning towards a ban, it says, well, it might keep it in some circumstances. Yeah. It's a place it, where soft power might be important and much eroded U S soft power can't help. It's funny you say that because, you know, there was a bunch of statements that were made. So, for example, um, uh, Vice President Mike Pence said uh, earlier this year at the Munich Security Conferences, quote, the United States has also been very clear with our security partners on the threat posed by Huawei and other Chinese telecom companies as Chinese law requires them to provide Beijing's vast security mm -hmm. apparatus with access to any data that touches on their network or equipment. We must protect our critical telecom infrastructure. And America is calling on all our security partners to be vigilant and to reject any enterprise that would compromise the integrity of our communications technology or our national security systems. Is this the speech where he got no applause? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, for something totally different. Yeah. But yes, he said that. But what was really interesting is like immediately following that, like immediately following that Trump on February 21st said, quote, I want 5G and even 6G. Whatever that know. is. <laughs> Technology in the United States as soon as possible. It is far more powerful, faster and smarter than the current standard. American companies must step up their efforts or get left behind. There is no reason that we should be lagging behind on dot, 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 dot. New tweets, dot, 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 <laughs> something that is so obviously the future. I want the United States to win through competition, not by blocking out currently more advanced technologies. We must always be the leader in everything we do, especially when it comes to the very exciting world of technology. Mm. He's, he's undermining his own government's yeah. efforts. So just, um, again, not for the first time on this podcast, <laughs> even, that, that we're seeing that. So, look, I, I wanna, I'm going to keep talking about this because... The thing is, that's the technical risk of Huawei. I think there's other reasons we may want to think about having them in the country. We can we can think about that a little bit further because I think the Huawei issue is just really at the crux of so many national security issues, whether it's the main case, uh, our relations with China, our relations with the U.S. Mm. In, in kind of this Trumpian world, but also like how do we want to treat these state championed companies coming into our economy? And what does that actually mean for Canada and Canadian security? Not even from a technical perspective, but from like a broader market dominance situation. Right. Just, can I make just, we're going to run out of time on this, but but uh, just one point about the statement that you see repeated over and over again in the reporting, the Chinese law since, you know, X time requires uh, firms to assist uh, the Chinese government. Uh, you know, so what? So, uh, the, the Chinese have on their books a law that says that. Did anyone believe that prior to that, that the uh, Chinese state-controlled enterprises or even private sector enterprises with which Communist Party officials were affiliated uh, in the silence of that law would not be in that position? So it's kind of this peculiar preoccupation with the fact that there's this formal codification. And of course, the flip side is, have you looked at FISA 702 in terms of obligations on tech companies to cooperate with governments? 
So the U.S. obligations on U.S. tech companies to cooperate with governments in terms of foreign surveillance, the preoccupation with the positive law, that is what the law says, seems like a really peculiar basis on which to, to now ring the bell and say that this is suddenly urgent. I think it, it probably is urgent for technical reasons, but I don't know if I would throw it at the at the feet of, of whatever the, uh, the Chinese law might say in this area. Yeah. It seems like a peculiar emphasis that I keep seeing over and over again, including that Mike Pence uh, speech. I, I just think the key line, and I mean, I think this is what Mr. Martin was saying in his speech, effect, which is effectively, this is a really complicated issue. And anyone who tells you the answer is either this or that is misleading, right? This is a really complex issue, and it requires a lot of coordination uh, internally within governments, uh, balancing priorities, as well as with allies, too. Because frankly, if the rest of the world turns around and tells the U.S. no, it's going to be interesting to see what the U.S., how the U.S. responds. So, Stephanie, we're, we're really at a, a time here in, in, in terms of our typical length for, for our podcast. Uh, and there are a couple of other things that have come up that we need to talk about at some time in the future. Maybe we could just, as a headline items, suggest what those are. Uh, because next day, actually, uh, we're going to have Mr. Justice Mosley from the federal court as a pod site. Uh, and so uh, we won't have time to convene you and I to get through these issues. It's great be a great session with Mr. Justice Mosley talking about the work of the federal court and national security. Uh, but what is it that we need still to talk about? Oh, so many things. Um, so yeah, we'll have another uh, probably Newzilla. This is Newzilla 2. We'll have Newzilla yeah. 3 coming up. There's a couple of things. One that's kind of interesting on the cyber front is CSE announced its equities process, mm. which is basically when it finds a vulnerability in a software. When does it decide to keep that vulnerability for its own hacking tools? When does it decide to actually disclose that to the software maker in order for them to, to develop a patch? So that, that's interesting. I'm hoping to get someone from CSE just to give us a brief 10-minute explanation of what that is. And it's it's a really interesting, but I think positive, transparent development because other countries have done this. And it's good to know that Canada is putting its policy out there. Mm. We, there's been so much that's happened on the foreign influence file. We have a new um, site task force, which is a security intelligence threats to elections task force. Uh, as well, there's been the announcement of a more coordinated internationally a rapid response mechanism that's going to be headquartered in Global Affairs Canada. We also had some incidents of foreign influence, basically. There were some uh, tweets, not not that many, but there was a mm. couple from, we'll call them adversarial states, but also some in-life accusations as well. Yeah. And McMaster and uh, University of Toronto as well. Right. So um, there's lots to talk about on those. Not, not, so by, by this, we mean uh, Chinese students uh, at these universities apparently acting in coordination with the Chinese consulate in terms of protesting speakers. Yeah, I mean, we, we think so much that foreign influence is online these days because mm. it's all you hear about, but no, it's, um, you know, David Vigneault's speech that we've talked about on this podcast before from December made it clear that the service still believes that the, the biggest problem in the foreign influence uh, situation is still face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So there's and, a whole and, lot uh, of... And on that point, by the way, Human Rights Watch put out a report uh, of sorts, not a very long one, I, as best I know, but a, a report on foreign influence by the Chinese government amongst diaspora communities, uh, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. And, and Human Rights Watch, by the way, has a tradition of doing this. They did one also on the Tamil Tigers about... Yes, 50, they did in 2005. 50, right, about 15 years ago. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful, actually, we can reach out to someone at Human Rights Watch and get them on the podcast, perhaps as a guest, to, to go through their findings. Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots to talk about on the whole foreign influence angle that I'm sure will be 
talking to you in Mozilla 3. Budget. Oh, God, we didn't get to yeah, the budget. Oh, my budget. God. So lots to do. Uh, just one logistical note. We actually upgraded our equipment. Yeah, hopefully. So Do, uh, I, sound, do I sound richer? I, I, well, I do I know. sound better? I don't know if our sound quality would be better. So apologies <laughs> to our, our ever-patient <laughs> listeners because sometimes our sound quality is uneven, and part of that is where the recording environment sometimes we're operating in. Sometimes we operate using Zoom, and sometimes it's just been a technical fail. But one of the things we've done now is we've got, we have new equipment that can take up to six external mics, so in the past, when we've had guests, it's been Steffi and I passing back and forth uh, a mic between the two of us, which creates some you know not so great sound. Uh, and then our guest has a single mic. Now we can all mic up a little bit better. Hopefully, that'll mean that we have more consistent sound, and you know, maybe I can do a better job of editing. Apologies, me, myself, and I, our technical uh, assistance firm, is uh, should regularly be fired, but we do the best we can. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe one day once we get our sponsor, <laughs> yes, possibly yes. Huawei, Huawei. Who knows? Huawei, Huawei can sponsor us. Uh, we'll have our we'll have our, our proper studio this and has a cone of Good silence. morning, Beijing. Good morning. <laughs> Good lord. This is going off the rails quickly. Let's end this. All right. Thanks very much, everyone. And Next day, we're back with our pod site with Mr. Justice Mosley. Can't wait.